We are back in Philippians uh, this morning, second week in the series in the letter. Um, we started last Sunday, and we got to see some of the themes. I, I introduced some of the things that we're going to address and, and, and see play out across this letter. Themes of joy, unity, peace, uh, contentment, all of it rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These, these things are prominent all the way through the letter, and you're going to see that play out in uh, this letter today, uh, which is, and I hadn't thought about it until we're doing this commissioning, is relevant in, in that Paul is working up towards or introducing his prayer for these people in Philippi. So, so we're going to be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Uh, we'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. So the word says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness." How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and I would just ask, just humbly ask, that you would do through it what you intend to do in the hearts of your people today. I know I have a, a message prepared, a sermon, a, a point to be made, but I know that it falls flat if not uh, used of you. And so would you work today in the hearts of your people uh, would you would you just bear fruit in the days and weeks and months and years to come that we would be a people who pray with, with, with these joy-filled, thankful hearts because we trust you so, so, so certainly and because we love each other so intentionally. Would you help us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, through the letter, th- th- this, is, this is an extremely positive letter. It's positive in tone. It's positive in content. If you read some of his other letters, some of Paul's other letters, they're not quite as positive, very, very direct, very correcting sin and, and correcting activity in the lives of Christians, correcting doctrinal error, things like that. And he gets, he, he is, he is not afraid to say true things in a very direct way. But as we read Philippians, you're going to see over and over that this is, this is one of the most positive, one of the most personal letters that he writes, but, 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 but still yet we get an undercurrent or we can see behind the scenes that there is trouble. There's, there's struggles and, and difficulty that these people are facing because of who they are, because of where they are, and because of how they're seeking to live. And so, so, so just as, as an example, Paul himself is in prison. He, he has been incarcerated because he is preaching the gospel. He's going around from place to place and he's making Jesus known and he is He's been arrested. That's trouble. He's writing a letter to a place that, and I mentioned these things last week, but just to get it back in our heads, he's writing to a place that's a Roman colony in Greece. And the way that occurred is through conflict. And that now, politically, you can just imagine that these people, even though in Rome they're good because they're they're, they're citizens of, of Rome, but in the surrounding area, they're surrounded by people who they don't belong to, that they would be strangers and aliens, if you will, in, in a sense, that, they don't, that, that, that they're considered citizens of another country. So then, the, then they're in a place that's pagan, not Christian. This is likely the first church in Europe, um, 
We, we, we know that, that the gospel spread around and, and it went across Macedonia, but, but the reality is, is that, that even, even bringing the gospel there was troublesome. Paul's arrested because he cast a demon out of a, a slave girl, and that slave girl happened to be, uh, uh, because of that demon possession, was able to do fortune telling, and she made her owners a lot of money, and he, he cast the demon out, and and the owners had him arrested because he messed with their financial income, and they got upset. So, so he, they weren't welcome. That's what I, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is this wasn't people weren't looking for Jesus when Paul brought them Jesus, right? And and they weren't necessarily pleased that that the gospel was there and that there was a church there just because it was there. And so you can imagine there's religious trouble, there's political trouble, and there's there's just trouble for living the Christian life in a in a pagan world. It's just a reality, and and, and we see that undercurrent, even though he's so positive. And, 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 and then we turn and we read this, the, the way that he prays, the, the attitudes and the motives of his prayer astonish me. Although all this struggle, all this difficulty, he can be so positive in this letter and he can be so positive in his prayer. Think about how different this is than when we pray. And I I know that not all of us are going to be in the same place in, in our prayer lives, but, but Paul's in prison. And his prayer isn't focused on him getting out of prison. It's the, he's got them in mind. How, how many of us, if we were the ones incarcerated because of our faith and preaching the gospel, wouldn't be saying, hey, you need to pray for me that I could get out of this place, right? But Paul's prayer is not focused on him getting out of prison, He's actually going to write much of this letter to comfort them, to say, hey, wait a minute, you don't need to be worried about me. I'm praying for you. Shocking. He's motivated for them because of Christ's affection. Paul's prayer for them is offered in joy-filled thanksgiving. Joy-filled thanksgiving. He is rejoicing. He is grateful. Why? Because he is so confident in what the Lord is doing. How different is that than when we pray? I mean, you just consider it. We hit some difficulty in our lives. What's the immediate thing we do? Lord, get me out! <laughs> not thank you. Not rejoicing. Right? Like, I mean, let's just let's, let's be honest with ourselves for just a minute. I, I, I mean, just... We, we don't want to beat ourselves down too bad, but we don't want to... We don't want to be dishonest with ourselves either. I mean, when we're facing hardship and difficulty, our prayers, would you categorize them as joy-filled thanksgiving? When we're facing hardship, are, are, are we moved to pray because we're trusting God's sovereignty or because we're doubting it? Are, are, are there any Christians that we can say sincerely that every time they come to mind that we pray for them and every prayer about them or for them is filled with joy and thanksgiving? I, I mean, is it not true that many of the prayers we pray for one another are the circumstances of our lives? Or the fix that person so they don't annoy me so much prayers? I mean, let's be honest. 
Some of us may really, I mean, let's be honest, some of us may really pray. We may have a, a matured to a place that we do pray like Paul. And we should be praising the Lord that there are people in this room, in this church, that when they think of the people in this room, every time they think of them, they stop to rejoice and celebrate that God is at work. We should be praising God for that. We should be thankful that that's true. But we should not be deceiving ourselves to think that everybody in this room is praying that way. There are many, maybe most, I don't, I don't know, I don't, it, I don't think we need to figure that out necessarily, but, but, but many, when we pray, we're focused on ourselves, maybe, maybe our immediate family. My four, no more kind of mentality, right? Like the, 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 the people in our household, those are the people that are on our mind. Those are the people that we're praying for most diligently. Many of our prayers are, are, are focused on what we want God to do and accomplish for us rather than thanking him for all he's already done and all he will do. Many of us pray, pray diligently when we're facing some difficulty, right? Like when times are tough, boy, we are a praying people. But what happens when the sun comes out or when the dawn turns to morning, right? The, 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 the suffering or this difficulty, the tragedy ends, and all of a sudden we're on the other side of that. Where's our prayer life then? Every time Paul thinks of these people, regardless of the circumstance, every time he thinks of them, every last one of them, he prays every prayer with joy and thanksgiving. Here's the lesson I think we can take from these verses, if we'll just be honest with ourselves, that we don't necessarily live up to these verses. Here's a lesson I think we can take. Even in the face of great difficulty, even in the face of great difficulty, we can pray for one another with joy and thanksgiving because of the assurance of God's sovereignty and the fellowship in Christ's affection. Even in the face of great difficulty, we can pray for one another with joy and thanksgiving because of the assurance of God's sovereignty and the fellowship in Christ's affection. Paul was dealing with hardship. I've already mentioned it. The, the church at Philippi had its own trouble. They, they knew their own problems. There, some of those were internal. He's going to reference them later in the letter. They knew, their, their, they knew trouble as well. And yet his prayer is filled with joy, filled with thanksgiving, and he references two reasons for that, two motives for that. We're going to deal with both the attitudes of joy and thanksgiving and the motives that, that, he, that, that move him to that. So, so, so just to begin this, just to jump in, I guess, and really start to break this down, look, look at verses 3 and 4, where we begin to see his attitudes of thanksgiving and joy. In, in verse 3, it opens with thanksgiving. I thank my God. Right? He's thankful. And at, at the end of verse 4, when he d- stops describing the way he prays, always, in every prayer, in all my remembrance of all of you, he caps it, he bookends it with joy. So we got this joy-filled thanksgiving, these attitudes in prayer. First, we're going to talk about joy. There's been a lot of work in Christian uh, uh, circles and in, in, in commentators and doctrine, uh, theologians and, and blog writers and all these people who write stuff. There's been all this work to try to make a distinction or show some nuance between joy and happiness, right? Like, so, 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 so because they, they are... Expressed maybe uh, one, one is Christian and one one 
one, we try to Christianize, and one, everybody in the world can feel, and, and those kind of things. And, but, but the word translated that, as joy here in this verse, when these people read it in, in the early days, as they're sitting and hearing this letter read, they probably didn't make a big distinction between what joy and happiness is. The word literally is talking about gladness of heart and, and this pleasant feeling, this emotive response, this, this happiness that, that, that he's experiencing as he remembers them in prayer. I, I think there could be a distinction made between circumstantial happiness and something along the lines of spiritual joy. I think that's clearly that, 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 could, be, that could be a distinction but, but I think the distinction that should be made is not the experience of it. Because everybody's happy at different times for different reasons, right? Everybody feels joy at different times and in different ways for different reasons. Both are an expression of joy. Both are pleasant. Both we all want. Like who, who, who walks around wanting to be sorrowful? I mean, maybe there are some people you know that way, but... Nobody likes hanging out with that person, right? We, we, the, either way you go, there's so many things that are... Con- I, I, instead of thinking about how they're different, I, I think we ought to abandon that cause and just recognize the distinction is not about whether happy and joy, happiness and joy are the same thing, but what is it that makes us feel happy or joyful? That's the difference. What is it that's the source of your joy? What is it that's at the bottom of your happiness? Paul's joy is clearly not based on his circumstances. Paul clearly isn't happy when he considers the Philippians because of their circumstances or his. His joy is founded on something much more substantial than current events or the circumstances of life. This is so important, I think, for us to learn. To, to be joyful or to know happiness and to be able to pray this way does not depend on us getting all the circumstances of life to line up exactly as we want them to. Imagine, that, imagine what it is to wait to pray with joy when life is suddenly the way it's supposed to be. Would you ever be able to pray for joy or pray with joy? No, there's always something. I can't help but think about this as it's happening in front of me. There's always a reason for us to cry, right? There's always a reason for us to be upset about something. Man, we live in a time where if we're waiting for the circumstances of life to line up so that we can pray with joy, then there, we're, it's not going to happen. To be joyful, to, to know this happiness and to pray this way does not require us to get all the circumstances of our lives exactly in line the way we want them to be. To, to be joyful, to know happiness does not require that we rid our life of all sorrowful events. When's that going to happen? So biblically speaking, joy is produced. It's produced in us. It is the fruit of God's Spirit. That's what Paul teaches us in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Did, I, I went by that fact. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? It is the work of God to produce joy in us, to, to make us happy. You know, there, there, there's a responsibility that we're to walk in the Spirit, that we're to be in step with Him. But this is His work. It, 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 it's something He does. 
if we can't find reasons to be happy or filled with joy, maybe, maybe we're looking for it in the wrong places. Maybe we're trying to measure it according to the wrong standard. Back here in Philippians, I think we, we, we can see that Paul's, Paul's joy is the result of the Spirit's work in him, absolutely. But not just making him feel, feel, feel happy for a moment because things are okay. But instead, by doing a work in him that changes him and what makes him feel joy and feel happiness. It's been my experience that God is more about changing the hearts of people than the circumstances in which they live. He is more about transforming you and your heart and reorienting you or orienting you for the first time ever around Him and His glory than making your life easy. We can talk about that more later. There's a whole other sermon that could be attached with that. Joy, that, we, we see that. We, we, we can see what Paul is getting at. He, he is filled with happiness. He is filled with joy. He rejoices when he thinks of these Philippians. And then the, 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 the other attitudes, thanksgiving. I thank my God. And now look at it. This is crazy. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. There's not one thing about you that's so bad, he says. Now I'm pointing at you as I do this. <laughs> I'm not, be careful here. There's not one thing about you, he says to the Philippians, that annoys me so bad that when I pray, when I think of you, that I'm not grateful. Imagine that. Is there anybody you know that never annoys you and makes you wish that you didn't know them? Maybe I'm the only one. Now, there are a few people, right? There's people in our lives, but this is a whole group of people that every time he thinks of them, he prays for them, and that prayer is given in thanksgiving and joy. What in the world? How is this possible, right? Like Being being thankful demands that we're satisfied with something or someone, right? It it, it demands that, that even though it may not live up, we can still be grateful. Gratitude, thankfulness, it requires contentment covetousness. That's the opposite of contentment, being satisfied. Always wanting something. Oh, you're happy with it for a minute. You're thankful for it for for a moment. And then that new car smell wears off. You know how it is. I mean, you get something new, you really appreciate it. It's so helpful. You're so enjoyable. This is exactly what I needed. And then you find out it doesn't satisfy I mean, there's businesses that are built on the reality that it doesn't matter if it wears out or not, you still want something new. Man, I use an iPad and an iPhone, and they don't care if the things wore out or broken. They just expect you to buy a new one every year, or at least every other year, right? And, and, and Apple products, they're not the only ones doing this. Always trying to make it look a little bit better, always trying to show how it fulfills a little... I remember when they came out with the Apple Watch, I thought, who in the world cares to have all this stuff on their wrist? I'm not casting any judgment here, but I bet they're all over the room. Because we, we, we begin, oh man, I, I, the phone wasn't enough connected, and now I need the watch. Well, I don't know what it's going to be after a watch. Maybe an implant in the brain, I don't know. 
But some way, we're going to find, we're going to, oh man, that's the, that'll do it. That's what I need. That right there will be enough. And that's, that's what we do. But Paul, every time he thinks of them, every, in every way, that, he, he doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't feel hard feelings. He's grateful because he's so satisfied. He's so thankful, so happy. At all times, in every remembrance, in every prayer, for every last one of them. Clearly, Paul's value system is oriented around something other. It is radically different than the pursuit of more stuff or people living up to some expectation, doing things exactly as he thinks they should. Now, what is it? What is it that makes Paul so thankful, so joyful that we're going to deal with the motives? So, so we see in verse 3 and 4 these attitudes in prayer for every one of them at all remembrance. And every, every time he offers a prayer, always doing it with thanksgiving and with joy. Why? How? Look at verses 5 and 6. He gives us two reasons. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And verse 6, the second one. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we're going to deal with verse 6 first. Because verse 5 is actually broken out, uh, expounded on a little bit further in verses 7 and 8. So the very first reason, the the very first motive we're going to look at in verse 6 is is Paul's assurance in God's sovereignty. If he, he is certain that if God has truly begun a work, there is nothing that can stop him from finishing what he's begun. This statement doesn't, that doesn't just cover the end and the beginning, but also everything in between. God initiates, he continues, and he completes the work he starts. But first, God initiates the work of salvation. You can see it again, verse 6. Sure of this, he who began, he initiated it. Your salvation did not begin at the moment. This is difficult for some of us to, to, to grapple with, but it's true. Your salvation did not begin the moment you professed faith in Jesus Christ. You realize that? Your experience of salvation absolutely did begin at the moment you professed faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment of conversion, when you repented of sin and began to trust Jesus Christ, your experience of God's saving work began in that moment. That moment, that conversion moment where you literally went from dead to alive it began in that moment. Your, your, your understanding of truth, your ability to see and respond and trust and, and follow and desire and, and do all these things, all of that starts right in that moment. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But God began a saving work around you and in you long before you responded to him. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He predestined you. He has been at work saving you so that at a real point in time, you and I could come to know him as our Savior, as our Father. He is the initiator of this work. He started it. Paul isn't ignoring the fact that these saints in, in Jesus Christ have any or, or have responsibility. Don't, don't misunderstand. He's not ignoring the fact or denying the fact that there is a responsibility for every believer at some point to profess faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. He's not denying that. He's not teaching anything in contradiction to that. 
What he's suggesting and what he's saying in this verse is that God started the work of salvation. He's the one that starts it. He also continues it. God continues the work of salvation. He, he, he isn't only the initiating force. He is, he is involved every day. You just think about this for just a minute. Imagine what it would be if God starts a saving work in you and then says, now it's up to you. Who of us is going to make it to the end? Who of us is going to make it more than a few months when the new car smell wears off and when the first trial difficulty we face hits? Alec Montier is extremely helpful in this place. I, actually, there was another quote I was going to share from him, but I didn't read it. Sorry. Uh, but, but he's helpful here. He writes this in his comments on this passage. He says, the assurance of God gives us, or I'm sorry, the assurance God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, it guarantees to ev- also to every experience of every day. For in all things, God is putting the finishing touches. That's powerful. It, it reminded me, it made me think immediately of our series through Ecclesiastes that we dealt with a few years back. Ecclesiastes uh, that we went through uh, several years ago. Ecclesiastes 3, one of the most popular passages of the scripture. People don't typically immediately uh, recognize it as scripture, but, but there's songs written about it. You know, there's a season for planting and tearing down, building up, all that stuff. So, so Ecclesiastes 3, I don't have the verses on, on the screen for you, but let me just since I'm talking about it. Let me get here. I should have done this because for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. In all these things under heaven, there's a time for them. There's a right season for them. There's ebbs and flow to the course of life. Whether we're in a good day or a bad day doesn't undermine the sovereignty of God working His salvation all around us, as Montier puts it, putting on the finishing touches. As the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, listen to this. What gain then? What gain has the worker from his toil? If this is the seasons that come, and we have no control over when we enter the season or when we exit the season, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to his children of man to be busy. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Through all these seasons, he's putting the finishing touches He is making beautiful what he intends to make beautiful. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done. So so God has placed eternity in every man's heart, but in some way, every man, every, every, every human being that's ever lived can't understand what God has done. I perceive them. This is I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful. Joy in Thanksgiving. Hmm. Maybe Paul knew something that the author of Ecclesiastes understood. 
that we can understand. God starts a work, he initiates a work, and God continues the work of salvation. The worst days of the lives of God's people are not the evidence of God's absence or the evidence that God has quit working and now we must now do it all by ourselves, but instead is the purposeful work to make us beautiful in the right time, or as Maltier puts it, to, to put the finishing touches on us so that when the end comes, he's done all he intends to do. Again, don't, don't, don't mistake what's being said here. Paul, in context of this letter, is not ignoring or denying that the Philippians and he himself has much to do. It has much responsibility to live out this reality. Oh, man, we can't, we can't miss the fact that God is sovereignly working, initiating, continuing, and God completes the work of salvation. God meets us where we are. He initiates the work to save each of us. But he doesn't leave us where he found us. If you've been a Christian for 10 years and your life looks exactly as it did the day before you got saved. You might not be saved. I want to say this cautiously and carefully. Because people are going to mature at different rates. People are going to understand and grow in Christ at different rates. Different uh, capacity, different, it's just going to happen. He's going to grow them differently and they're going to pursue their responsibility to pursue and live the life he's called them to. It's going to be, it's going to be different. But we have to recognize this. He saves us, initiates a work in us that absolutely radically transforms us and does not allow us to continue in the same direction we were already heading. It turns us. It transforms us. Death to life. And the beauty of the work that he starts and he's continuing to do in every one of us is that he is not going to stop until he's done. He doesn't leave us where he found us. And he will never stop the transforming work in every one of us until he has completed the work he started, the, the work of transforming or, 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 or conforming us, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, conforming us to the likeness of his son. This is his purpose in every one of his people. So you ask the question, why this, God? Why that, God? Why am I enduring this? Why, why is this person... It doesn't, it doesn't matter why other people are dealing with what they're dealing with. Well, God is going to tell you that the, the, the Scripture's answer to our why questions is so that you'll be conformed to the likeness of His Son. This is His end goal, that when you stand in glory, you won't be able to boast, look at what I've become. But you will be able to boast, look at what God has done. Because He is sovereignly Working, And that provides much assurance for Paul. That he can be joyful in the face of difficulty. That his prayers, instead of pleading for God to take something from him, he can celebrate what God is doing in and through him and others. <laughs> Again, I feel like I have to say it. This in no way undermines our responsibility to respond because we have been saved, because God has initiated, because God continues, and because God will complete His work. We are responsible 
to live like he has started a work in us. We are responsible to live as if he's continuing a work in us. And we are responsible to pursue the end goal. But praise God, he's not left us to it ourselves. Because none of us would make it. And this fills Paul with joy and thanksgiving that that's the attitude within which he prays. I am confident in this. And, and, and here's what's beautiful about this. I, I'm going to reference this in just a second, but it's beautiful because he's not even celebrating for himself. Like, most of us, I think, I could be wrong about this. I found this uh, t- to be true in myself, and I don't want to project on you, but most of us, when, I, when we think of things like this, we get excited because, whoo, I can rest. The work is finished in Christ. But who's Paul celebrating this for? Others. He is so assured of God's sovereign work of salvation that he's celebrating it in their lives. And he's moved to pray for them with gratitude, with thanksgiving, and with joy. The second motive, we're going to see verse 5. It actually happens to, to, to work its way out through the rest of these verses is fellowship in Christ's affection. Jump back to it. Jump back to verse 5. So, so here we go. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first... That's the first one. Partnership in the gospel. Now, I'm going to deal with this in just a moment, but I want you to recognize partnership in the gospel could just as, be, just as easily be translated fellowship in the gospel. I, don't, I didn't talk to the translators. I don't know why they t- chose that particular word. Probably because of some of the contextual stuff around it. But... It's the same word for fellowship. Because of your fellowship in the gospel, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, from the very first moment that, that he entered Philippi, he meets Lydia, he ends up leading the Philippian jailer and his household to, the, to, to, to Christ. And, 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 and so from that first moment, there's fellowship, there's partnership in the gospel. And, and again, in verse 6, he's not celebrating God's sovereign work of salvation for himself, although I think he's excited about that. But he's celebrating and he's certain that God has started to work in them. And because God has started to work in them, he's celebrating the fact that that every time he thinks of them, he thinks of the work that God's doing. Because God is sovereignly working. And then verse 7, it's right for me. He begins to defend his feelings or his thoughts, the way he considers them. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me in grace. And just another note about words in in original languages. Partakers with me in grace. There's a fellowship. It's the same. It's a different uh, form of the word. But it's essentially the same word. Could be fellowship with me in. uh, A fellowship with me in grace. Both in my imprisonment. So he's not with them. But they're partners with him. They're partakers with him even though he's in prison and he's distanced, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, which again is just another way of demonstrating that their partners are fellowshipping in the gospel with him. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Verse 8. Paul isn't ashamed to clearly demonstrate his attitude towards these people. He thinks positively of he they, they they fill his mind with thanksgiving and with joy because of the sovereignty of God's work and salvation and because of the affection of Christ in him see not only is he unashamedly saying yes I think this way I feel this way about you but he's not about to take credit for it himself it is sourced in the affection of 
Christ Jesus. This shouldn't surprise us at all, really, to be honest. Because John 13, 34 through 35, this is what Jesus says is going to happen. A new commandment I give to you. It should happen and will happen. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This this relationship, this, this focusing on one another, this intentional loving of each other is the result of Christ loving us. We're not denying the responsibility and the difficulty at times of actually practicing that. Think about it. Is it always easy to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Almost never is it easy to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because of them, but because of who we are. To be this affection, this concern, this, this, this drawn towards a person costs us because we can't be focused on ourselves. We can't be living for our own pleasures and purposes and fulfilling our own selfish desires. So it's almost never easy. And then you complicate it with interpersonal struggles. Right? But this, this is rooted in the love of Christ for his people. And because he's loved us, we will be marked by loving one another. We will be known because we love one another. I think the first time I ever recognized this clearly in my life as a Christian, I was in China in the middle of nowhere, stepped onto this bridge, and there was these ladies on each side of the bridge. It was strange to me that we were in the middle of nowhere, but there were ladies on this bridge selling goods, and there wasn't a lot of traffic on the road. This bridge was a walking bridge. It wasn't like cars didn't drive over it. You can see a picture of it in the, in, on Google if you want to. It's called a Wind and River Bridge. It's a really traditional way in which they built bridges in China to get across these rivers. But we walk onto the bridge, and there's ladies on either side of us. And, they're, and, they, and as soon as they see a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of Americans walk onto the bridge, they jump up, and we can't understand a word they're saying, but they're trying to sell us, right? They're trying, they want us to buy their their. their were their, their wares. Um, I can't even remember all that they were selling. They were selling traditional clothes and all, all kinds of different stuff. But as that kind of calms down, we hear this other group singing a song. And we're not speaking the same language. They're not singing in English, but we recognize the melody. And I wish, I wish I could tell you, I remembered it clearly enough to say what song it was. But it was a hymn, something like Blessed Assurance or something along those lines that if you hear the melody, you're going to know. And we're like, wait a minute. So we sat and sang. They're singing in Chinese and we're singing in English. Of course, we as Americans only know the first verse of the, and, and the chorus. That's it. So we had to repeat that over and over. I don't know if they may have been singing the whole thing. But as a result of that, we get invited into one of their houses, and we find out they're members of this underground church that's in this village that's nearby this road. These are Christians who face oppression and all kinds of trouble if they publicly pronounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and I'm telling you, couldn't, couldn't say anything, don't know anything about their struggles, but every time I remember them, I think of them... Hmm. 
it fills me with joy to know that God's working on the other side of the world in a place that most of us can't even get to. He was already there. It's not like we brought him there. He's already working. And these people, whew, so hospitable and welcoming. There's immediate affection, immediate celebration. Because of what Christ has done in us. We got absolutely nothing in common but what Christ has done in us. I think about it, just even consider, consider what these people have in common. With Paul, Paul's, Paul's a, a, a Jew by, in his heritage. Like he's going to break that out further along in the letter. He's got nothing in common with these people who were pagans by birth. He, he has nothing in common with these people who are, are uh, living in Greece. But he talks about this partnership and being partakers, this, this fellowship. The word is koinonia. And it's not the first time it's ever been used. It's not like Christians came up with this word to describe what it is to have Christian fellowship. It is a common Greek word. It conveys a sense of morality, a, a sense of commonality, solidarity, and shared responsibility among households or individuals. And so it might be used in business, or it might have been used uh, speaking of marriage. But here it's obvious that the thing that unites them is not their relationship or their, their, their long knowledge of one another. It's God's sovereign work of salvation, and the affection of Christ Jesus has bound them together so that every time he thinks of them, and every prayer he prays for them, and every remembrance of them, and all of them, he prays with thanksgiving and joy. <laughs> J.M. Boyce writes, If you unite with other Christians on the basis of affluence, this is the weakness of seeker-sensitive churches. It's the, it's the weakness of the attractional models. It's the weakness of age-graded. So, so our community groups, we are purposefully, intentionally not age-grading. If, 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 if you can't sense the, the cross-section of the church having littles all the way to olds, I don't know. How, <laughs> I didn't want to say bigs. <laughs> I didn't think that would be right. But we need the cross-section of the church. We, if you unite, he, he just makes this point. It's beautiful. If you unite with other Christians on the basis of affluence, you will exclude the poor. If you unite along social lines, you'll exclude those outside of your level of society, be it high or low. If you unite intellectually, you'll exclude either the simple or the intelligent. However you do it, the witness of the church will suffer. How thankful we must be that God did not establish the fellowship of his children along these lines. Our fellowship, our partnership is in the gospel of God. We are partakers of grace. And that's what Paul recognizes in this church in Philippi. Just imagine what that means. Partakers of grace. It frees us from the comparison to one another. The measuring up and the competing with. We all equally need God's grace. And we have all had his grace lavished upon us. This frees us to be open and honest without fear of judgment and condemnation. Or should. <laughs> right? Instead of having to put on my Sunday go to church clothes so that you're impressed with me. We can be who we are. Trusting that God's grace is at work in each of us. However, this also frees us to be truthful with one another, to confront sin and hold one another accountable 
because we know it's God's grace at work in us that conforms us and transforms us as we call each other to this. We're together fellowshipping in God's grace. This is the thing, that, the common thing that holds us together. But we're also, he says, he calls the church in Philippi partners in mission. This takes their, their eyes off of themselves and, and their own little worlds and places them first on the Lord and then the Lord's people and then those who the Lord hasn't yet reached but intends to bring to a place where they are able to profess faith and repent of their sins. Just imagine what that means. This can be experienced in other places. I experienced something like it in the military when when, when every one of the roles, that, that I was a helicopter mechanic and crew chief, and, and the pilot's lives depended on me while we were on the ground, well, while we were in the air too, because I had to do my job right, but I did my job on the ground, mostly. And while we were in the air, my life depended on them. And we had a bigger thing to look at than what was going on in our own little lives. We were able to forget about what was happening in our little lives and think about the bigger thing. And that's what's happening here. Is it, 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 but, but it's not circumstantial or momentary. This is the life and purpose that we have now been given in Christ. To live for His glory, for the good of others, and the advancement of the gospel. And because of these two things, because of the fellowship that's in Christ's affection, and because of the sovereignty of God, Paul was able to pray with joy and thanksgiving. And that lesson, I think, is one we need to continue to grow in and learn. Even in the face of great difficulty, we can pray for one another with joy and thanksgiving because of the assurance of God's sovereignty and the fellowship in Christ's affection. Let's pray.